Season 2 of the Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mack. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. You can find us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com, on Twitter at Podcasting Light, and on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. This time on the podcast, we have the one and the only Dennis Parrish. <laughs> Dennis has a good thing. Uh, there's only one. <laughs> Dennis has over 50 years' experience as a lighting designer. His first off-Broadway show was in 1964. I believe that was Little Ale yes. at the Actors Playhouse. Right. First Broadway show was 1976. Knock Knock at the Biltmore. Long association with Athol Fugard, Marshall Mason, Lanford Wilson, Drama Desk Award, Obie Award, Drama Log Award, three Tony nominations, and you're also an educator. Yes. At Purchase College. At Purchase. Thank you very, very much for joining us, Dennis. Okay, I'm glad to be here. Also with us, previous Casting Light podcast guest, Mike Valdesari. Hello, hello. Uh, gentlemen, tell me how you know each other. Well, I met uh, Michael at uh, UConn many years ago. I was a pest. Many years. I don't remember even exact what year that was some it's been a while yeah it uh, was uh it was 1987 okay. you came up to school to do anything goes right and uh, summer uh, it was a summer, summer thing theater. and i remember i drew it and all that kind of stuff and then i just pestered dennis to just right. keep hiring me after yeah. that is basically That's what basically what happened and then, you know he gra- <laughs> he graduated and they came to the city and so i was using him a lot as an assistant in various shows through for a year or a couple of years yeah. there and it was the very first thing I drew was Lanford Wilson's Burn This that went into the Plymouth Theater. Yeah. Which is still my favorite theater because of that. Mm-hmm. And I remember and Dennis gave it to me to draw and I went home and uh, actually didn't even have a drawing table yet. And I drew it on my parents' ping pong table. Wow. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yes. Yeah. I wasn't going to say no. Oh, right. Okay. No, of course not. <laughs> you know, that's like... Uh, Doing in hotel rooms on, yeah. on random yeah. desks and yeah. tables. Which, well, we still we still do that, except yes. now we do it on computers. Right. Oh, right. Well, <laughs> yes, it's a little easier now. Yeah, I yeah, do remember yeah. doing it on paper. But I was I was fascinated places. by Dennis's uh, the whole circle rep thing and and you know I don't know. I was just start off. Can you tell us about working at Circle Rep because you had such a long association there? Right. Well. Uh, Kind of uh, you know, go back to the beginning. I mean, uh, my first off-Broadway show, Little Layoff, which I got a very bad New York Times review for. <laughs> Listen, be glad they mentioned the lighting at all. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> anyway, you know that was Marshall was directing it, and and uh, Rob Thurkiel, who is also one of the founders of uh, Circle Rep, was uh, in the as an actor with you know it was a lot of Northwestern people. We all uh, were trying to get on together so i started uh working with marshall on and off plus you know trying to make a living right. for a few years there and finally uh, they created the theater i wasn't there right at the beginning because i had gotten married and moved uptown and uh, was just trying to make a living and struggle along so i lost track of them and then suddenly i heard they were doing these shows and i went and you know said hey marshall what's going on let me like to join the group again so it was probably the fourth season that i did the first uh, show there and uh, i had known lanford actually we met uh met him just after marshall did which was probably 19 the late 1964 when i had just come to new york and uh 
I had done a few of his uh, early, early things off off Broadway, uh, the Sandcastle, uh, Bomb and Gilead, and a couple small, you know, sort of one act plays that he he had written. So, and we used to sit around at the Cafe Chino, and he would read his newest work to whoever was there and stuff like that. It was really an exciting time to. It's like right know, out of a movie. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. very much out of a movie. And wow. So, so this was that exact like. Just thing that that's supposed to happen that you come to New York and you meet another young artist yes, and you exactly. all sort of rise up as a group together exactly that that's what was happening you know and uh, kind of you know in some ways uh, miss that because it's you know after a right. while everyone has to eventually you can go on your own path and it's uh, uh, it's not quite the same yeah. anymore although there are many wonderful things along the way and people to work with so the circle rep was created in that spirit right yes exactly to sort of keep, the band a, together. To keep the band together because during the earlier years uh the uh, there was a whole group of playwrights actors and uh marshall and uh stuff who kind of stayed together and formed a group but it was a very loose group and everyone of course had to keep making a living and so, and so you, right. and it was always can we get a company together can we try to create something all on our own and also quite clearly it was that thing of you often have to do make your own work you know so let's create a group that'll will then we'll be able to control some of it and control what we do and what plays we want to do and that kind of thing that's really great advice yes you mean so you're not at the mercy of someone else's choices exactly and also you know you're all starting in it together the people who have made an advance already they're busy with their lives and how do you break in with them and and convince them that you can do the work and that you you know are a good collaborator and stuff so if you do it with friends and people you know who who trust you and you trust them, then uh, the, in the end, I think it uh, works very well. If you can keep at it, the biggest part is getting an income that can, you can live right. on Especially during those, those years. You know, yeah. so. Staying the course. Exactly. Yeah. Staying the course. That's a good way but, to put But I, I think also that the idea of like, hey, let's put on a show, it's kind of like as you start out, like as when you're three years old right. with your cousins or whatever, hey, let's put on a show and, and to be able to make a living at it with your friends mm-hmm. and so right, you guys exactly. all kind of came from Northwestern, is that? Well, most uh, most of us did, and uh, there were a number of people, well, uh, who were kind of from the Midwest also. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lanford was from Missouri. We didn't meet Lanford until here in the city. He came separately. He had been in Chicago about the same time as we were at Northwestern, but we had no contact with him. And I think he may have come here before Certainly before I did, and I don't know exactly when. But anyway, it was just sort of fortuitous. You know, you went to the Cafe La Mama, or not the La Mama, but uh, particularly with the Chino, and Lanford had had a couple of his early shows there, and Marshall met him and, you know, introduced himself, and then I got uh, introduced to him and stuff. And when you guys were hanging out, would... Would they ever come to you and say, Dennis, we have this idea, we're writing this thing, and it's gonna, we need lighting to do this? Like, would, would they ever come well, to you early on in a process? Well, I don't remember it happening before Circle Rep, but during the years at Circle, 
Lanford in particular would come. He was working on a new play and he'd come and say, you know, I've got this wonderful thing for you to do. <laughs> you need to do this great sunset or something like that. And he would describe something in the play, which, wow, okay, I'm wow. ready. You know, it was really quite exciting that some of that, yes. I mean, that's a great play. I mean, it's, it's awesome to kind of have that ability to, to sort of see it before anyone else does. Exactly, you know, yes. Way before a designer might ordinarily... Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. While he's writing it. While he's writing it, basically, <laughs> yeah. or at least if you, even if I didn't see the script, I saw I got an idea about what he intended to do right. and stuff. Uh, there was another a play that wasn't very successful, but he said, you know, we can have this thing where there's a lecturer talking about the universe and we want, you know, stars to appear. <laughs> it would give you a image of something in the play that caught your interest and huh. said, oh, okay, that's really interesting. And then it, that fed what eventually you did with it because you already had this, this one thing which for him, in a sense, was... The most important thing about the what he was writing at that point uh, that particular play he probably only had the first scene right you didn't really know what was going to come after that but there was things but it was a kernel of an idea it was a that kernel you could, of an, exactly yeah, yeah yes. really cool wow yeah. so, so what what set circle up apart from working with other venues or other organizations i think uh, the main thing for me was that it was a group of actors, playwrights, directors, and you know, stage managers and all that who stuck together and worked together constantly. So you began to know know each other and know. It simplified, first of all, communication. You had a shorthand. Shorthand. Okay, thank yeah. you. That's exactly what I meant. Yeah. There was a shorthand about about the work, and you kind of trusted each other to do. You would do your job, they would right. do their job, and yes, there was. Uh, communication about important things but you were all sort of doing in in the same flow together and it's all pre i, I think it's important to remember too pre-email pre-even yes, fax exactly. and yes, stuff right That's so if you wanted to communicate you had to like pick up the phone, phone you had, a, and, had this, and, they, they, these were things that had dials on them louis ck was like exactly. had a, you hate it when people had like a zero in the number you had to go all the way around it was like making sparks you know exactly <laughs> uh, well and and just speaking of technology uh, just because people maybe don't have a, a you know are listening to this kind of all over the place don't really know what off-broadway is per se but could you describe a little bit about physically what Circle Rep was like, and well, the equipment, uh, a little bit about yes, equipment. And, yes, you know. yes. It was, uh, first time uh, I did a show there, it was in uh, Upper Broadway and 83rd Street. It was above a shoe store in the second and third floor. It had been an old uh, clubhouse for Bohemians or Polish people at some point, <laughs> and they would, you know, hold dances and have lectures and, and stuff like that and I, I don't know what happened to them but it was an empty space and Marshall and uh, Lanford had found it it was just a, a little stage at one end of a big room except there were a couple of pipes but it was like 30 instruments and uh, 12 dimmers is what it was you know uh, auto transformer dimmers and right. the old-fashioned uh, incandescent lamps and all of that stuff so it was very simple and very, there was you dealt with what what yeah. was there, and you could, there wasn't any budget really to speak of. I think maybe you had twenty-five or thirty dollars, and sometimes you know you'd you'd buy the color yourself because there was nothing, right. you know, if you needed some color or something. So it was very simple, and 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 everyone in the company, 
was expected to pitch in, like help hang the show or do scenic work on the scenery and stuff. It was very much like wow. a, an old-fashioned kind of... Let's put on a show. Let's put yeah. on a show. And uh, the uh, number of the actors worked in the front office and did... You know, took care of the publicity, and everyone had a its second and third job most of the time in, in part of the, the theater in those early days. In some ways, uh, kind of like a collective almost. Yes, I think that was a part of it's definitely part of the idea. And uh, well, when we moved downtown to uh, Sheridan Square, we had a bigger space, but it, for <laughs> several years we just you know had to kind of eke it out and and use the same equipment we had and and we had to, I had to well me and a couple of other people kind of the wiring had been disconnected so we had to reconnect the circuiting that was permanent in the space it had been a theater at one time and then wow. uh, it had been abandoned so gradually over the course of time we added instruments to it but it was never a really big inventory or anything and around what year was that that you moved downtown to uh, Sheridan Square my uh guess is that it would be like 1975 or 76 but right. i'm not positive that that's it. so when you say but, the theater was abandoned it was probably literally abandoned exactly like people yes. just walked away right. from it they walked yeah. away from it it was an empty space and it had some uh these wireways in the, on the ceiling uh -huh. you know with outlets and they were uh, at that time they were all uh, twist lock Mm -hmm. You know, and there used to be some pipe in there, but there wasn't. So we had to put a grid in. Right. That was one of the first things as well as re reconnecting those circuits, which eventually we abandoned because they just were too old and, and they were not adequate. We had to. People forget people forget what New York City was like yeah. in, in that in those days and stuff. And that's why I say like when you say abandoned, it wasn't like, oh, they moved out. They probably literally Yes, exactly. And, yeah. and the last use yeah. before us had been uh, uh, some uh, local, like, uh, council seat election headquarters had rented the building because right. it was a big empty space for a few months, and that was the last person that had been in there. And what was it like, uh, just moving ahead then, when Circle Rep first got a, a Broadway show? Well, the first one was Knock Knock, and it was uh, one of those uh, hastily done... <laughs> things you know it was really a lovely show and very funny and uh, it was selling out and everything and the producers were coming to look at it and then uh, one day uh, about a week before it was to close you know you, and I got a call from uh, Marshall or the, the circle rep office or something saying oh we're going to move it to Broadway and we in uh, in a week you know <laughs> <laughs> oh my god so it was suddenly a, this panic of how can we get this done in a week? Right. And, uh, John Lee had uh, uh, put out plans for a whole new set that would fill a Broadway stage and stuff like that. And I had to get a plot ready and stuff and had never done it before. So right. wow. there was a lot of things that were, what am I doing? And, you know, you get very nervous and the and first time you, around. Were you already in USA at that point? Uh, yes, I had been in USA for... I don't know, uh, eight or ten years, mm -hmm. you know, I'd done some off-Broadway and stuff like that. So it, um, anyway, I got a message that the production electrician needed the plot. Like, you know, two days from now, right. he had to have a plot. So I rushed to get, <laughs> to get it done and, uh, you know, figure out the best way to do this. And it also had uh, 
complications at downtown were not really much, but here suddenly there was a full roof over the a full ceiling, full ceiling over it, and you know most of the positions were front of house only, with a few odd, odds and ends around the, the set and everything. Right. So I was guessing at how to do it in some instances, and the production electrician who was known to be a really tough guy to work with, who. Uh, and I don't recall who told me this, but someone who had uh, uh, knew of him, certainly, uh, that he was one of those who his job, he felt, was uh, to protect the producer from spending too much money. So he was going to come and beat on, beat on you, as it were. <laughs> and he came and looked at this thing, and I had some pipes over the ceiling, because at the, at the very end, some holes open up in the set and there had to be shafts of light coming through those holes and uh he said mm, uh, he looked at it and growled sort of and didn't say very much and then he said how do you think i'm gonna focus those things and i just said i don't know <laughs> and we sat there for what seemed to me like five or ten minutes sort of not really right discussing it and finally said Okay, I'll put up some focus tracks, you know, <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and it was, you know, I, I didn't really have a strategy for dealing with them. It just, right. I had to have them, and so it sort of, and it, it worked out pretty well, uh, except that uh, it was, again, because it was so rushed, They the producers made us open the show without a thorough tech. Jeez. And the, and they invited all these uh, people, the socialites and rich people and stuff, to come to this this uh, uptown opening, hoping that they would, you know, they'd love the show and it'd be word of mouth and and stuff that in the right place. Well, the show went rather poorly in some ways, and it didn't, wow. you know, it just uh, didn't ever live up to its promise. It was. Anyway, that was my first <laughs> baptism of fire, and after that, right. nothing else was quite as uh, scary. Well, that's not certainly not how you want your first Broadway to go, no, where you have a exactly. week to design the show and no time to put it in, yeah, and then you had no time to tech it. That's right. What was that transition like? Obviously, dealing with the production electrician, that was something that you hadn't had to deal uh, with before. What else did, did you find that was a, a surprise going from downtown to uptown? What I discovered, and, and we were all, our first Broadway shows, uh, was kind of like the same kind of problems you run into yeah. in a little theater off-Broadway where you're kind of improvising your way through it happen on Broadway. Yeah. It's just a bigger scale, and, you yeah. know, and there's a more, more at stake, but uh, it was the same kind of thing. There was, you know, no real significant difference. And of course, this one, they didn't really throw a lot of money. They wanted to do it on the cheap, so that right. also contributed to how That's the best way to go to Broadway. Yeah. <laughs> the best way to go to Broadway is to do it on the cheap yeah. with your first one. That, you know, exactly, everyone will love yes. it, and then they'll just ask you back, right? Yeah, that's right, 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 exactly. Right. So. And, and what what was the reaction sort of in the company of Circle Rep, of all the... of you know, I mean, were they all well, excited to go to Broadway? Well, they or were, were they excited. Afraid Everyone to go to Broadway? was excited to go to Broadway. Right. Uh, I think uh, the company in general was disappointed at the results because of these things. Right. And uh, 
you know, one looks back and says, well, we shouldn't have done it or we should have waited and we should have found right. someone else to do it or or not taken the, the opportunity because it, the circumstances were right. so bad. And it's one of the things uh, kind of have to learn after a while that there are some circumstances, even if it seems really important or you need it for your advance your career or something or it's going to be a great show to work on that if the circumstances surrounding it or you get bad vibes about the people you're going to work with it's yeah. better not to do it and let it go yeah. and go on it takes a while to learn that for, for, well i i agree totally i think that and i when i walked in i was telling you guys about just turning something down sometimes it's really hard especially because we're in the kind of work where you just want to take everything. Yes, exactly. And that's a really hard lesson to know when it's the right time to turn stuff exactly, down. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I, I made the analogy. I said it's like, um, you know, in real estate, one of the, what's the only thing that works in an old house? The owner. So if you're <laughs> if you're looking to buy real estate, be careful you're not just buying somebody exactly. else's problem. Yes, and I think right. that that's sometimes, you know, they put us under under this incredible. You know, you got to work with crazy people. You got to work under difficult circumstances for no money and you know all this stuff. Sometimes saying no is a much better way yes, to go. Yes, it is. And, uh, you know. There were eventually, I, I did learn the lesson. I mean, there were at least one or two other times when I didn't learn the lesson. And then finally, okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Even though, for instance, uh, there was a show that Marshall had nothing to do with Circle that he was going to do on Broadway. And our stage manager went with him and uh, John Lee did the set and I think probably Jennifer or maybe Laura Crow did the costumes but the, the the producer was really crazy and everyone warned me about this and mm -hmm. there were all kinds of things and also the star was you know a big name and uh, who would have some input into everything well I just said no because that just and there were other things I had already committed to no I can't do it even though it's all the people that I normally work with right and, uh, you know, they went into production, you know, forced into production to get in before the Tony votes, the Tony nominations. Right. And uh, all I could hear was disasters. The, the star threw a fit and so they fired the stage manager and the uh, they weren't getting along with the lighting designer who actually threatened. Uh, it, well, he took the disc out of the board <laughs> so there weren't any cues so that, you know, because right. Marshall was a very unhappy with what he was doing and stuff. And they called me and said, can you come in and save this? And I, I, I was in the middle of a show also. So I said, I can't do that. And that just, it was really uh, the best thing for me, even though it was kind of abandoning your friends in right. a way. That, uh, in other words, it didn't turn into Phantom of the Opera. It did not. <laughs> it was not that show. Yeah. <laughs> and so now moving on a little bit. So after that first thing that happened in Circle Rep, then they started to have some success, right? Yes, With Tally's Folly. Right, and exactly. Kind of, so what was it like then when they sort of, for for a minute there, they they had these shows that were just yeah they they were doing quite well with uh, get, getting shows transferred and stuff uh, uh, except for tallies none of them ran as long as one would hope they would have but uh, those experiences were all good actually in terms of putting the show in into a new theater you know uptown and everything there was a, a good support from the uh, from producers and the money people and uh, 
uh, everyone was working together uh, for the same goals. I was going to ask, did, did it feel stuff. like the team was still together? Oh, the yes, same the people team, of the team, Let's team Put On A Show. Still together, yes, yeah, exactly. That's really and, awesome. And many of the uh, the regular actors from the company were, were in the, those plays, although there was still, every once in a while, we someone came in from the outside. Mm -hmm. But even they, uh, with very few exceptions, they fit in. They they. It was a comfortable right. place for them, and, they, and several of them would come back later, you know, even though uh, they were used to doing uh, Broadway shows or movies or something and getting paid better. But if, if the chance occurred, they would come work with us. And sort of how long did that feeling last, that feeling of, of it togetherness? It lasted well into the, into the last few years. It, it was, uh, I'm not sure exactly... I can pick an exact date, but somewhere around probably 1992, 93, which is like the last three or four years. Uh, Tanya Berrison, who had been uh, the artistic director that followed Marshall, I don't know uh, how it happened. She decided not to continue in that role. And then we had uh, two or three people who were only briefly in the role and and also the money was beginning to right. to dry up so it was beginning more and more difficult and then they had to leave the theater we had been in all those years and and go to uh, the old circle in the square on Bleecker street uh for a while so it, it got very difficult and uh and most lots of the rest of us were doing other th so many other things that we right. weren't as close and and with with these new artistic directors you know people came in that we hadn't worked with before and things like that so it, it was kind of beginning to fall apart right and the big problem with circle rep was always raising enough money to keep the company going you know manhattan yeah. theater yeah. club has a however they do it they can raise money and they always seem to have the right. support and circle rep no one connected with it had the gift <laughs> of being able to raise the money you need to well, keep I, it going. I just saw an interview. So funny you said Manhattan Theater Club. I just saw an interview with Lynn Meadows, who's the artistic director, and she said when she first took over, uh, she asked about the budget, and they showed it to her, and she said, oh, it's very nice. You know, in parentheses, it said $75,000. <laughs> and no, yeah. you know, so that that's that's where they you know when she when she started with them that's where they were yeah before we go off it so we're sort of at the end of circle rep but before we do that just so people know kind of what were some of the big really big hits that they had besides tally folly and um, 5th of july and well those? i think burn this was uh, one of the big hits uh we did do As Is, which was one of the early AIDS plays, but uh, it didn't last that long. I, you know, it was a perhaps too specialized a topic for a Broadway show, but it did make the transfer. Uh, there was a, another Lanford show, Angels Fall, which was quite good and, and lasted a few months, but again, it was not one of those really long-lasting things. Tally's Folly, how long did that run? Uh, about a year and a half, I think. It right. was something like that. And yeah. 5th of July? That's another 5th one, 5th of right? July ran probably two years, maybe a little little past that. That one seemed to, uh, in some ways, have more life to it for some reason. And there was, you know, uh, a series of uh, actors who took the main role uh, who were well-known. I think um, 
Sean Penn, I believe, was in it for a little while, and people who came, you know, came wow. in that yeah. the names seemed to help keep it going because it started Hurt. with Sorry. Christopher Reeve, and then he left, and and, and well, maybe that was for doing the Superman movie. I can't remember exactly, but uh, so he made a good choice there. He made a good choice. Yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> you know, since you're talking about Landry Bolson, you know, you did so much work with him. I, I want to talk a little more, a little more deeply about your relationship and how you worked together, how you communicated, and how that relationship developed over time. Okay. Um, for me, uh, Lanford was a, a, a good friend, but not a really close friend. And our, our main relationship was in the work. And I, you know, I hung out with him a lot, because, uh, especially in the early days. Uh, Marshall and Lanford and a couple of other people in the group and me would like have breakfast every morning at a local diner and uh, when you could afford just, to do that. you know yeah talk 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 about mostly about theater and stuff and I'd just hang out with him but uh, you know uh, Lanford was just one of the he would he had long conversations with Marshall. Marshall often advised him about the writing and said, you know, you got to revise this and revise that. And I, wouldn't, I wasn't part of any of that in any way. And it was only until there was some kind of script that I, I got involved. And actually, except for those moments like I've already mentioned where he said, there's going to be this in this show, I didn't have any direct collaboration directly with him. It was always through Marshall. He always talked to Marshall about anything, and then Marshall, uh, you know, filtered it out and sent it out to the actors and to the the, the uh, designers and stuff. So uh, that's pretty much the way it was. The only really close uh, collaboration with a playwright that I've had, uh, yeah, it's probably the only one, is with uh, Athol. So for several so for several years, because uh, sounds a question about that too. And, and also, of course, he was directing all of those shows himself. So there was a very direct connection there, and we, you know, talked about the plays and stuff. And he would he would do things like in rehearsal, he would ask uh, my opinion about something on the stage if he was unhappy with it. And a couple times, it was he was also playing a role in the, in the show. So. He, <laughs> What do you think about the way I deliver the, <laughs> which is not something I usually got from anyone else. I mean, yeah. Marshall would never ask anyone because Marshall was that uh, he's the dictator, as it were. He he'll decide, and he's not going to ask a, a designer in most cases anyway, unless it's a technical or visual question. But I think that makes sense also in that you know. We spend our whole time, this is what we do. So yeah, we just sit exactly. in front of looking at shows and stuff right. like that. So I think sometimes that's a an error that is made where it's like you have a lot of people in the room you can yes. ask. Right. You know, like so, sometimes I, I, I know I have that feeling sometimes you're working with somebody and, you know, they're spending a whole year putting a show together. Yeah. But all the designers and all the people in the room, they've done 25 shows in the year and right. they, they bring a lot to the table yes yes that's so. true so when you guys were hanging out and having breakfast and all that stuff were you just talking about theater all the time or were well, you also talking about politics time, and... no not not a lot about that i mean they were t they were really obsessed with theater and it was a lot about uh either uh 
like talking about Chekhov and, and things like that, or it was about uh, someone's newest play or the production at Cafe La Mama, or, or it was uh, gossip. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a lot of that. I can fill some time <laughs> who was sleeping with whom and you know that kind of thing and so and so had a fight over it. you know there was always an element of that in right there. right but and and then would everybody sort of go off and see other people's shows and, uh, and yes, try to report that, back that's on what, that's what you know. uh, a lot of it was yeah you know mm-hmm. uh, I saw this little show Chorus Line I don't know if it's going to yeah, go anywhere exactly yeah. that kind of thing yeah. Lanford and uh Marshall, in particular, were always going to see shows. And there, it was always uh, one of those things. Uh, you wondered where they got the money. <laughs> or, you know, sometimes I know, uh, for instance, Lanford would get uh, uh, free tickets from new dramatists. They, they would give out, you know, because right. he was still a young, up-and-coming playwright, and he would get tickets through them and stuff. But uh, sometimes it was like... How can they afford to do that? <laughs> you know, and that was one of those. Um, they both, uh, well, I don't know for sure, but I know Marshall never really worked as such. I mean, he didn't do a side job of any sort. Right. And somehow he always managed to get through things and stuff. So and just wow. theater was all the only thing that he really did. So tell me about Burn This. I mean, I feel like we have to talk about that one. Oh, yes. Well... Burn This was funny because it didn't start at Circle, although it was all these Circle people. Did it start at Steppenwolf or no, was it, it a co started, it with? started at the Mark Taper Forum. Oh, it worked we its way. We did it there first and we worked its way back so, this way. And we did it in Philadelphia then and we did it in well, Chicago. Well, we did it at Steppenwolf, right. at Steppenwolf. And I think we did it at Philadelphia at the, uh, at the uh, University of Pennsylvania. It has a big theater. St. George or something like that. I kind of uh, remember I can't that. remember the name of it now, but anyway, that we did it there, and then it came here, and we did it off Broadway. <laughs> it wasn't at the theater in in Sheridan Square. It was uh, on Broadway at like 18th or 19th Street. There was a, a small space there. We did it in, and then finally it moved to Broadway. So it was a kind of kept jumping around and stuff. It was an interesting experience. Uh, Especially when we got to, on Broadway, where uh, Malkovich added an element to it that we'd not had before, because he, it was wild. Well, he was not. Uh, he was kind of a diva, except it was a quiet, in a quiet way. I mean, Marshall would talk about how he uh, he insisted on the hair that he had, which was a wig that was sort of wild and stuff, and which Marshall, I think, didn't really like, but. Malkovich insisted that that yeah. was the character and he needed to have that. And then uh, uh, the one thing I remember is that uh, the last scene of the play is uh, takes place in the dark without any turning out any lights on. And uh, uh, I was, you know, started to light that and trying to figure out how to, you know, deal with it, making it look like there were no lights on and we could, yet we could still see what was going on. And after about five minutes of the of the act, he said, he stopped the whole thing and said, it's too light up here. I don't want to be seen. So we had to do a, Marshall had to go talk to him. We had to discuss what to do to wow. to satisfy him and to make it. Uh, it was all kind of silhouette, if I remember. It was kind right? of silhouette yeah. with patches of light in various places and yeah. stuff. So we had to negotiate where the patches of light would be and what would make him happy. 
I remember like his that. his uh, opening monologue that was just oh, like yes, it was incredible. it was like a freight train coming through the back wall of the theater, and at the end of this incredible just screaming rant that he went on that was also very apropos of New York at the oh, time. Oh yes, it was really where he was very like, New York. It takes place in an apartment and he's looking out one of the windows and he says oh what is that? Oh it's five mountains of oh it's shit. Or you know it was like barges of garbage on the river or something yes, like that. It was very vivid. Right. And then the end of it was his shoe was hurting him and he pulled the shoe yeah, off. You know, it, was, <laughs> it was really... <laughs> <laughs> and he just had a fight with someone for a parking space on the streets. <laughs> yeah. He yeah. was raging yeah. about that. And it was 4 a.m. or something. The, yeah, so here, here's what I remember about it. Um, it was five five Roman arch windows. Right, exactly. And each one had a corresponding three different colors of gobos from the front that were on the front of house truss. Yes. And one had to be armed upstage and one downstage Stage. so they could all be right on top of one another, another. to change the time of day. Right. I remember a, a lot of PAR 64 strip lights and stuff upstage. Yes, yeah, exactly, to get lights through the windows because there wasn't very much space back there, but it was the, the best thing to get punch, punch light through those windows. And there was some little, there was like a little something or another that uh, had like three inkies pointing through, or not ink, yeah, three little Lecos pointing through it. There was like a little loft area. And oh, then yes, the other I, part was she was supposed to be a dancer, Right, so yeah, there was so this tiny little a, pipe, like yeah, three-quarter pipe grid on stage with a couple of yeah, Fresnels. Supposedly and, she uh, would uh, st stage dances in there for friends. So we had some Fresnels and stuff yeah. on this uh, little grid that was hung under the uh, the ceiling that was overhead. Right, which it was John Lee Beatty, so yes, there, of course it was the ceiling. It does, yeah. Yes. And a big skylight, right? Was a there big a big skylight, skylight too? yes. Yeah. Which yeah. Uh, was... Always a bit of a problem. It was uh, if you did it, if you lit too much from through the skylight, the skylight became the feature of the of the piece instead of the right. actors wow. below. So you could hint at light from outside up there, but uh, it was it was well, it was partly because it was the back of it was sort of painted, so it was gray and muddy and dirty, like a, a New York. Uh, like all Windows of New York was are, at the yes, time. Yes, at the time. So, <laughs> so, of course, that all just lit up as if you were lighting a painting rather than right. the light, letting the light through it. So, so, what, so what were your goals? What, what were you trying to do? What were you trying to say? And how did you do that? Hmm. <laughs> because, you know, I, I don't I, know if people know this about you. You are one of the grandmasters of saying things about character using light. And I want to get to a little more about that later. But I imagine this is a show where that was critical. I guess it was critical. Uh, what I remember about my goals, and I'm not sure this is necessarily accurate, but my goal in that one was to set the place and the time so that the action of the play was plausible for these characters. It was kind of a, this is a beautiful loft apartment that this woman who has money in her family had renovated and it's a beautiful dance floor in it, but it's kind of barren because she didn't have any furniture in it at all. And it was just a dance space. And then, you know, but it was really kind of elegant as she was elegant. And the thing is, it's really a play about her primarily, I think. And somehow her elegance and uh, sophistication because whatever furniture was beautiful furniture and really uh, beautiful objects and there was a whole thing about 
champagne flutes and how much, how expensive they are and stuff, which is typical of who she was. So it had to be quite, quite I think, uh, although outside was uh, gray New York uh, in the winter, it was fall and winter, inside is kind of warm and, and uh, beautifully illuminated. And against that is this pale who comes in who is rough and has is rude and has no manners and who grew up in a totally different environment because the whole the whole point of the play is this man and this woman come from totally different places in their backgrounds and while they're attracted to each other there's this can they live together could they actually succeed and the end of the play is really they're going to take a chance after they keep he keeps coming back for her and she keeps letting him in for a, a day or two and then sending him away because it, it frightens her and she, at some point both of them have to take a chance on it so it was kind of a beautiful environment and and outside was the the ugly reality that was pale's world in a way and i'm exaggerating that probably to some extent and that was really uh, my goals, I think, in the play. Okay. You know, uh, that the lighting would somehow help us see those uh, two levels. Well, yeah. I, I have a quick question. I mean, do you feel like, I mean, that to me is just a master class in script analysis right there. Mm -hmm. So do you feel like your script analysis ability, and, and it was something that I always admired when I, when I was working with you, did that come out of the coffee shop? Did that come out of like hanging out with those guys and stuff? Well, to some extent, it probably did. Uh, it was really something I had to teach myself along the way. Uh, it it started. I mean, it started at Northwestern, but uh, I never had to at Northwestern apply it to designing in any way. Right. I'd learned to begin to an analyze, and uh, then I had to. Spent three uh, summers in uh, Summer Stock Company where I was learning how to manipulate lights and how to get it up and make it look good. But I didn't have much time to analyze the script. I just right. had to, what, what does the script need? I'll, do, I'll get, you know, those things and I'll figure out a way to make it happen with very little equipment and limited circumstances. And then it was really when I got here that I began to read plays and read them again and again and say, well, what is this about? And the, the thing that I did in the early days uh, was I tried to attend lots of rehearsals because I found that often really re revealing about what was going on. I'd listen to the uh, actors with the director exploring what the characters were doing and what was going on in a scene and that you know and thinking about the relationships of the characters and the you know, phys physically and also emotionally what you know in observing it so and then I began to take that into reading the script so that uh, after about I don't know uh, by the late 60s, I'd kind of developed a method which involves probably reading the script five or six times. I just write notes. This guy is thinking this here, and I, I get an impression of this in this place, and little images, and sometimes color images, and shafts of light would come to me, and I'd just make hundreds of notes and reread it and sort of analyze 
partly from previous, uh, besides watching rehearsals, some of the stuff I'd learned at Northwestern to divide it up into the individual beats of the script so that I could say, you know, here they're talking about this and this relationship, and then it shifts to this and tried to uh, follow it through so that following the journey of the characters, where did they start and what do they want, and then how do they get to where they end up is still the, probably the most important thing yeah. about it to me. I'm just better at it and faster at it than I used to be. It took a long time sometimes to, especially shows that were outside my normal experience, you know, about a group of characters or a place or a era that I had no direct uh, experience of. So I'd have to work really hard at figuring out what that, that, what that was. And sometimes I didn't, I don't think I was successful at, you know, it was hard to do. I mean, there was one time though, that shocked me. I did a, uh, at Circle Rep, uh, James Joyce's one play, Exiles, and uh, Rob Thurkeld, who was uh, directing it, uh, in the middle of a rehearsal at the theater during a it was giving notes to the actors actually just after the rehearsal and he said now he came up and he took my script and he said now look at here what dennis has written here now he's analyzed this you guys you know sort of you guys are you paying attention to the details and stuff so just surprised that i didn't even know he was aware of what i did but anyway uh and you want to do all that before you start having conversations with the director. I try to, yes, yeah. absolutely. As I say, it's a lot easier now, and it's just because I've done it so often, so it does isn't as uh, arduous a task as it used to be. But uh, I try to do all of that in advance so that I have a idea of what the story is, because yeah. part of the the main thing of the collaboration is that we're all telling the same story from our own points of view. And so what is that story? So uh, although it certainly doesn't happen all the time, some directors uh, sort of skip this, it really is works best when the first meetings are everyone together and you say, what is the story? Tell, talk about, you know, when you talk about it, you know, this is a story about this kind of thing and this these themes and stuff. And, and you begin to discuss that and everyone throws in some uh, their own uh, opinions and uh, perceptions about what's going on in the play and then out of that generally comes a very uh, effective approach for everyone you know so do you find there's less interest in doing that kind of intensive like meeting discussion thing now well than it used actually to be? i don't know i think uh, actually probably there's more interest in it now i haven't had a chance to work with uh, a lot of the, the youngest directors who are, are doing well and, and are managing, are coming up. But I, my impression is that more and more often, they want to talk about those things and start with that. Whereas uh, in the early days, it would be, uh, yeah, I need it to be bright and stuff, and, or they wouldn't talk to you, the director, unless until they were in the theater. Then they would say, oh, no, I don't like that at all or something, you know, right. rather than saying in advance, this is the kind of thing I see, you know, uh, a number of them, uh, uh, of the older directors and, you know, distinguished directors <laughs> are often like that. And when uh, they would just, uh, they really didn't want to talk to you about, especially about like, obviously, set design, 
it's physical and they need certain things and certain kinds of spaces or you know and stuff but uh lighting designers it was like when we get in the theater and then i'll say oh i hate amber get rid of that amber over there or that's too dark or whatever it is you know and uh that's very interesting uh alan schneider who was you know i'm sure he won a couple of tonys at least uh in his in his heyday who directed uh several acclaimed productions i think he did uh, tiny alice i know he was a known uh, interpreter of beckett's work and uh he was very well known and and respected but he would he would say oh do what you want when you tried to talk to him about it and you'd say well all right and then you'd get into the theater and start lighting it and he'd say no no that's wrong show me something else you know and what right you can't, you can't even tell me what now what you want why didn't you tell me in advance at least something about it so and this is all pre any kind of technology so it's yeah, not exactly. like oh, it just was, put a different color in the moving lights or right, change a scroller exactly, it's yes, a whole yes. thing yeah. and i i do think that uh my impression anyway is that it's better now that the directors are more likely to engage in useful conversations with yeah. designers and especially lighting designers because they see what the lighting can do for them and they also have, have uh, are probably better trained visually than they used to be was this a case of, of where they were some of them were still adjusting to the idea of lighting as its own thing well it could well be because certainly a lot of them came from an earlier time when you know i just needed bright enough to see the actors kind of thing right. or the scenery script analysis is so important because there's a certain amount of just the plumbing that you have to do you know you yes. need some backlight you know you need some front light some side light you know blah 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 but but to make it to to bring our art to it i think it really exactly. does it's the script analysis and the script analysis really... uh, informs you of the kinds of contrasts you could use to underline certain uh, things that are happening in the play it gives you oftentimes a line of development in the design so that it starts bright and goes dim or i mean that's yeah. the most simple kind of thing but it you know or it starts uh, colorless and turns into color later on and you know, you know why you're doing those things and stuff uh that's i think the most important part of it and identifying what things the lighting can do to help communicate the story and support what the actors and the, the script is doing. On that note, let's talk about Tally's Folly. Okay. I mean, this was a really important show for you. It was really important. It certainly was uh, of the, you know, maybe uh, half a dozen or a dozen plays that I, I think back on as being an achievement for me and, and almost a step forward in some way. Besides the fact that Tally's was, is so engaging as a story, I mean, here are two people... Who are in love with each other and are afraid to take it anywhere and each of them has secrets that they have to reveal and as a, the other part of it is that what you have to pay attention to in tallies is what Lanford sets up at the beginning which Matt tells the audience he's come to woo Sally and win her hand in marriage and so he has arranged that this be the most beautiful night in the world. And that's really where everything I did came out of, that this is 
the epitome of what I could uh, imagine as the most wonderful romantic night in which to be with your loved one. And so it starts with this, you know, work light on the set, sort of bland and dull, and the set is a set. And then you're going to make magic for Matt to woo Sally. And so it turns into this beautiful evening with the sunset over the river and the crickets and the, I mean, it's everything is there that you could think of to make it uh, the most wonderful. So it was all about, for me, making each moment from the time of that, the uh, work lights go out and where suddenly the sun is in the last moments of its setting and is streaming into the boathouse and these beautiful uh, washes of color from the, the dying sun and the beautiful blue sky behind it and it slowly turns into night. And so there, the rest of it is Matt and Sally are, well, Matt is chasing Sally around physically and emotionally to get her to commit Mm -hmm. And they're constantly going all over and they're going through patches of light from twilight coming through the, the leaves and stuff. And then eventually with the moonrise, it's like that's revealing getting there. We're at the climax of it. The moon rises and they're outlined in gorgeous moonlight that all of that stuff is in the script. I, I didn't invent anything there. I mean, the only. Uh, thing beyond the script that it's implied is the uh, decision that there was going to be a literal moon that rose in the sky, you know, a moon box basically that rose gradually in the sky and that there were going to be stars in the drop, which, uh, you know, was part of the set design. So I was just following the course of the story and the vision that Matt had of winning Sally's agreement to marry him and for both of them to surrender themselves to that uh, love that they had. Well, this seems like a good time to ask you about Night on Stage. Well, <laughs> one of the harder, it's often the harder uh -huh. things to do. Well, the, the Night on Stage ballet is a whole different thing. I bring this up because I, I remember an occasion, oh, it's probably 25 years ago, I went to the ballet with my wife and we saw Swan Lake. I think it was the only time I've seen it. But that last act with blue light everywhere, pretty much even in all the, I mean, it's beautiful dancing and stuff, but it just drove me crazy because it was like, more blue lights in the world, <laughs> and, you know, and of course, blue light is kind of uh, the cliche for night. Yeah. And night, for myself, the way to do it is to make sure that that if you're going to use some blue light, no matter what, almost always, or whatever light is there, is broken up, and that there are patches of darkness somewhere there, so that there's always that sense of if I go a few more feet it's going to be dark so that it's not everything lit up because that's uh, and that's uh, basically it i mean and the most interesting uh, night uh, things i've done have all been about templated systems uh, the blue light with a lot of shadow in it and the actors finding a place where there's light for the moments that they needed it and being willing to move through sh darkness. And also the other thing is oftentimes uh, as, as important is that the light that hits the set 
either has to be minimal or broken up. If it's a wash of even light, then no matter what the color is, you don't believe it's a nighttime. That makes sense. Yeah. No, I, I agree completely. I think it's very difficult to do. And But, but the thing that you brought up that was so interesting is, is about having the actors find it and, and they exactly. use it. I mean, yes. that's, again, Let it's part of, it. exactly. like what I always right. say, you know, theater's a team sport. So we're providing this part, but, but it has to be in concert with the actors right. and, and, exactly. and stuff yes. like that for it to work. In Illuminating the Play, your book, uh, you yes. had also discussed finding inspiration for Tally's Folly in the painting in The Repentant Magdalene. That was specific to uh, the one moment in the play in which there is a light source other than natural, because they, there's one moment and they sit down together to have a cigarette, and Matt lights a lantern, which happens to be in the boathouse. So they sit around this lantern, one on each side, having sharing a cigarette, having cigarettes, and uh, the repentant Magdalene was an example of what. In, in a painting of what I was uh, aiming for there. I see. I don't think at the time I, I was specifically thinking of that one, but I just chose that as an example for the book. You know, it may also have informed that in the sense that I'd, I'd seen it before and thought about it, and it became part of my repertoire of uh, things that, to do and uh, qualities to uh, recreate. That's it for this episode of the Casting Light Podcast, but that is not the end of our interview with Dennis Parashy. Come back and check out part two in our next episode, where, among other things, we'll be talking about his long association with playwright Athol Fugard. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. You can use the contact form there to let us know what you think, and you can find all of our previous episodes there. We're also on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast and on Twitter at Podcasting Light. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by The Lame Drivers. You can learn more about them at lamedrivers.com. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for downloading, and have a good show.